Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 135. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. From high atop the stately Lee's Comics mansion, we bring you the Lee's Comics Radio Hour with tonight's special guests, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Cerebus the Aardvark, and yours truly, Wally Fields. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar. Scroll down to Sellers and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Minutes by Mark Arnold and Fun I Did Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Minutes and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Hey Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You've sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? 
those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the Prefab Four, Mickey, Davy, Peter, and Mike, the Solo Monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> get Headquartered, a timeline of the Monkey Solo Years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. I've turned in the final edits for the TTV scrapbook, and it should be released sometime this fall from Bear Manor. I'm also currently working on my Mad and Turtles books, an article about dino writers and Popeye for Back Issue magazine, and more funny stuff for Andrew Goldfarb's Freaky Magazine. No news yet on my other books. On today's show, we have a special guest who's turning the tables on my podcast. It's Camden Spees, who writes for Cartoon Research for Jerry Beck. And today, he's going to interview me. He wants to find out all about me. So the show is going to feature me. And here I am, Mark Arnold, me. Welcome to the Fun Ideas Podcast. I've hijacked this podcast. <laughs> and I am now the host. My guest is Mark Arnold, who is the usual host of this podcast, but not today. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, for this thing, I'm going to, if you want to look at Mark's career from his early days, also look at Mort Todd's, his interview with Mort Todd. It's specifically called Mort Todd Returns, um, which now... This is going to be something totally different. I'm going to talk about playing people Mark met. I'm going to talk about other projects that Mark went. I dug deep through Mark's blog, Mark's old resumes. Oh, crap. <laughs> um, Mark's jobs, why Mark, why Mark lives in Oregon, and, and, um, and, of course, his books. Now, first, we are going to talk about a little bit about your early career. What is now? Now, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about your childhood that Mort did not ask. First of all, what is the first movie you saw? The first what I saw? Movie you saw. Ever in my life? Yeah. In a theater or on TV? Either one. Oh. I think in a movie theater, it was The Love Bug, which was the first of the Herbie, Disney mm. Herbie movies. And that originally came out in 69, and it was sometime around then. I was about three years old. That's what I believe I, is the first movie I saw in the movie theater. Uh, as far as TV goes, it could be The Wizard of Oz in like 1971. Um, could be The Ten Commandments, which I didn't finish that time. <laughs> um, but I didn't watch a lot of movies at that young age. So I, I really, it, it could have been something on the Disney show too. I don't know. You were just hooked on the box. What? You were just hooked on the TV, on TV. Yeah, so. So, because with me, it was, I never got interested in old movies until much later. Yeah. Um, because now, now, were you also hooked on comic books from the very beginning, too? Pretty much, yeah, because they were around. I mean, yeah. I didn't know how to get them. I just, there was just like a stack of like 10 or 15 random comic book issues from random publishers. So there was like an issue of 
Casper, an issue of Wendy, an issue of Mighty Thor, an issue of Three Stooges, Yogi Bear. Um, geez, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. Underdog was one. Scooby-Doo was one. You know, just random stuff that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. And I, my sister's a few years older, so maybe they were gifts to her. Uh, but I somehow acquired them because she kind of grew out of them. I never did. <laughs> Uh, now, were you interested in superheroes when you were younger as well? Yeah. Not as much as maybe other people, but I, I liked them. You know, my my take on superheroes has always been this. I, I mean, I've been Mr. Anti-Superhero just to be a butthead, but the reality is I like them, but I tend to like the more comical stuff. Like, I will say that I like Adam West Batman versus any of the theatrical ones or anything like that. Because it's comical, it's humorous. I think right. superheroes is a little too serious. But I've seen a lot of the recent Marvel movies and DC movies and stuff. But I don't aggressively I, go see them. I've actually been in the middle between that, yeah. where I was, I was like interested. I'm interested in like you know when it comes to TV, I like the Batman animated series and like the Superman Fleischer shorts, but the gritty Dark Knight stuff just never was appealing. It's no. It's like, it's like, it's, I've been kind of in the middle between, which is, which it can be have funny moments, but it's usually kind of dark. Yeah. It's, it's well, I mean, super- I like Batman, the Batman adventures and uh, those Fleischer cartoons. I like Superman adventures that they made later yeah. on too. Um, yeah. But when it got to like Batman Beyond and stuff like that, I was just like, <laughs> you yeah. know, but that's usually what happens is these characters start out pretty good and then they, get progressively darker and grittier and I get less and less interested because I feel like one of my favorite of the current like superhero movies, which is a few years old now was Thor Ragnarok. And it's, you know, a lot of people don't like it because it's so silly, but that's precisely why I do like it. And uh, there are are a couple of things I can think of that are almost too stupid. Like the Captain Marvel serials that they did. Well, way, way back in the forties. Yeah. Well, those are like, yeah, those are like, I mean, those serials are, like, are pretty silly. Yeah, what? Those are actually probably too stupid. Yeah, I think the best of those are probably the Kirk Allen Superman ones, and yeah. even those, you know. <laughs> um. Now, now for now, when you were growing up, were you were you because I know you mentioned that you were a Jay Ward fan. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and I'm 100 certain you were also a Warner Brothers fan. And yeah. a kind of a bear fan and all that. But were you adamant also about Harvey Comics, The Alvin Show, and Total Television as well? Or were you more interested in the stuff that people have already written about before you started writing? Um, let's see. What's the order of liking things? I mean, I like pretty much everything. And I probably liked Hanna-Barbera stuff first. Because as a little kid, it's usually, at least the traditional stuff is usually the most accept- accessible for a small child. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember seeing stuff first run like banana splits and I never liked Scooby-Doo much. Sorry, but <laughs> I never did. I, have, um, I never no. did either. But I mean, that's like their evergreen thing that they seem to always have. And it's like, you know, I always liked uh, Yogi Bear and those yeah. kind of things. Um, gradually, I, 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 I liked Jay Ward as a little kid. Um, but I didn't appreciate it. I think when I talked to Keith Scott about it, I was telling him, it's like, when I was a little kid, I'd watch Rocky and Bullwinkle and enjoy it, but I didn't know it was a continuity. Mm-hmm. It was like, 
you know, because they always said, join us again next time for blah, 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 or blah, blah, blah. And then the next time I'd watch, it'd be a completely different story because I wasn't ever necessarily watching every day or every week or something like that. And so I just thought that was the joke. They were always in the middle of a story. It wasn't until I started really appreciating about age 12 that I realized, wow, they actually wrote these long stories. Some of them, like the moon fuel, were like 40 chapters. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's when I really became a fan. But as a little kid, I, I kind of liked Rocky and Bullwinkle. I liked Underdog. Um, I never liked Tom and Jerry as much. I liked the Looney Tunes, pretty much all of them. Uh, Filmation stuff, I watched it, but I didn't like it very much. I like it more now. Uh, the Patty Freeling stuff, I, I, I love the Pink Panther when I was a kid. I loved Popeye when I was a kid. Yeah, um, I can tell. I, I, uh, I was listening to the, your commentaries on on your Patty Freeling sets, and I could tell, like, there came a point when you did crazy, like, I just felt sorry for you. Yeah, well, I was getting older at that point, and they're made for TV, and even yeah, Jerry yeah, Beck gonna, was having real troubles with I kind of felt sorry for you when you were watching those. Yeah. You, were, you and Jerry Beck were just like, yeah. I was like, I had to turn that commentary off. It was so... <laughs> Jerry's was so the funniest. Bad. There's one of them that's priceless. Just, he had to get that little jab in there, because it was around the end of the line for to Patty Freeling stuff and it's like it is hard I mean if if I had to make like a a rap an overall commentary on crazy like train I could probably do it better than the way we did it where we had to what we had to do on those is we had to pick specific episodes and try not to pick the same one so if Jerry picked a particular one you know I typically would pick a different one but sometimes we did the same same one but most of the time we didn't and it's just to give it more variety um of course jerry you it usually had first pick so you pick like the the pink fink and stuff like that the oscar winning ones and all that stuff which is fine you know i, I wouldn't have minded doing this but it was there are other favorites of mine so it's no big right. deal crazy leg crane was nobody's favorite so it was really tough to pick and to to just do it you know and it's like right. but i managed but yeah it was very difficult <laughs> when i was watching crazy Lake crane I remember seeing them like on a boomerang network and I was yeah. like, this just looks like a bad hippity hopper cartoon. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. I thought the kid acts like a mix between Sylvester Jr. and Charlie Brown. Right. And the crane is just dumb. That's, that's yeah. all I thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if there's a negative side on Patty Freeling overall is just the, propensity to repeat you know scripts and stories from earlier cartoons and just not do them as well unfortunately and it wasn't necessarily due to budgets it's just you know you've seen it before and you know the timing was off it was slower and i don't know how to explain it were but, you a disney fan growing up yeah i was a disney fan but i didn't um my Disney thing is kind of weird. Yeah, I didn't mention Disney because I always think of them as like everything here and Disney. <laughs> it's yeah. like um, I used to hate the wonderful world of Disney show because it seemed like every week it was like a nature show. And they didn't show any of their live action films, at least any of the good ones. And they didn't show any of their cartoons. Occasionally in the great while they'd have like Ludwig yeah. von Drake goes to Spain or something like that. But for the most part, it was yeah. like. The Yellowstone Cubs, and it seemed like every week was the Yellowstone Cubs, and it's like, uh, you know. Eric Goldberg 
once told me on the phone, he said, much as I love Disney, because he grew up, he's, he's a lot older than you are too, so he says, as much as I love Disney, yeah. we were talking about Hanna-Barbera, I was doing an essay in Hanna-Barbera, so I asked him, would you be willing to do this? But he says, much as I love Disney, he said, I would like turn in to the Olaf, to all, and, all, and then by the way, Tom Cito, when I asked him, he said the exact same thing verbatim. He says, I just never watched the Disneyland show. It was only nature shows or live action. I just turn it on Christmas time because then they have some, all, from all of us to all of you, it'd yeah. be the same show. They would just yeah. have a different guy, different different animated sequences. Yeah. No, they, they did show, they did show the did. Winnie the Pooh shorts separately. Yeah. It's just like a, a regular special, like a peanut special. And right. so they'd have a half hour for Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree or and usually they're brought to you by Sears or something. And they ran those a few years in the 70s. So I got an appreciation for that. But, I mean, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, it, it was like they never showed that stuff. Or if they did, they'd clump them all together. Like, I remember, like, they'd do ones like On Vacation with Mickey Mouse. And it would be like little cartoons kind of tied together loosely right. with an underlying theme. That one wasn't too bad. But the cartoons were cut. I didn't know that at the time, but later I found out, wow, they cut scenes out of these things and stuff yeah. like that. And like, oh. with, with me, it was kind of weird, though, with Disney, was that I was never interested in Disney until, like, high school. Yeah. And then I liked Disney because I thought, I always thought Disney was, like, anti-Warner Brothers. Because, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> it kind of is. Yeah, but... I could see that. <clears throat> I could see that. I was always uh, interested in Warner Brothers, Hanna-Barbera, and then, like, I gradually became a Disney fan. Yeah. I did it in this order. Okay, so as a little kid, like I said, they didn't show the short cartoons. I was aware of the characters. I mean, the characters are, like, right. omnipresent, or at least they were in the 70s. So I knew who Mickey Mouse was. But, you know, I'd see, like, drawings of, like, Clarabelle Cow and Horace Horsecaller. I never saw any of those cartoons until I was probably a bit adult. I'm sure you were familiar with. I them. might have seen them in the comic books too. So I mean, I saw the comic books, and then, but I became a fan of the parks first, Disneyland mainly, and yeah. was really intrigued. And I had a friend that was also really intrigued because they used to be really close to the best on how they did those things. Now, if you turn on Disney Plus, here's how we do all the effects in Haunted Mansion. But back then, it was like we don't tell anybody how we do it. Yeah, right. so for years I did. How did they do the stretching room? I didn't, you know, it's an elevator. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but, you know, how do they do the ghosts where they're in, dancing around? It looked like they're invisible. Oh, it's a reflection thing, you know. Oh, but they never said that back then. So I was like really intrigued. How did they do this? Um, I, slowly over time, I became a fan of the feature animated films because they started reissuing them and I went to see them over the years. Mm -hmm. And then they started putting them on home video. So I had this thought, I want to get all... My original thought is I wanted to get all of the theatrical animated features on 16 millimeter. That shows you how old I am. And then I did finally get them all on VHS tape, which has now since been replaced by DVDs and now Blu-rays. So I have a, it's kind of funny to have just a box about so big. And it has everything from Snow White to Fox and the Hound. That's or No, I have Black Baldwin too. That's kind of where I cut off just because it's before Eisner. <laughs> which, which I remember was really this. I have the same opinion of Black Cauldron you did. I was watch. I did two shows. Watch, re-listened to two things. I re-listened to your one with Jerry Beck, yeah. and I did re-listened to your one with Mort Todd. Yeah. I agree with you in Black Cauldron, by the way, what you said on that podcast that it was just, it was not bad. It was just, it was just there. Yeah. Yeah, they've I done better too. films later, and I do have those. But to get them all on Blu-ray, I kind of stopped there arbitrarily. You know, I could get Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and blah 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 blah. But you know, it's like. 
I already have them on DVD. Do I need them on Blu-ray too? I don't right. know. <laughs> but no. then I got to be a fan of the shorts only because they finally put out those tins with Leonard Malton about 10, yeah. 15 years ago. Because you got you got to remember, they, it, uh, growing up, and it's just like the way it is now with Disney Plus. They only have like about ten cartoons of each character out there, yeah. you know. And then I found like, out, wow, trailer. there's a lot of cartoons I've never seen before. So I was like pouring over all these sets. I knew yeah. about them because of Mites and Magic, but I never saw them because they didn't show them anywhere. Yeah, it's like, like if you see them, like I remember the first time I saw a Disney show was like on TV, and it's always the same one. They yeah. showed Mickey's trailer. That's the one they showed. Every five minutes, it was Mickey's trailer, and then they might show one of the um, how-to goofy shorts. That's it. Right. And those aren't bad shorts, but, I mean, when you see them over and over and over right. and over and over and over, like, I, I'm that way about Looney Tunes. I, I was obsessed to seeing all the Looney Tunes. Yeah. I finally did because, I, you know, um, well, I thought we would when the Golden Collections came out and then they stopped at Volume 6. I thought they would just keep going until they got all 1,000 cartoons up. But, um, yeah. I would have thought they would do what they did with the Laserdisc, though. They would put all of those except for, like, the 12. The yeah. 11 and then the other, the, the um, Sitting on the Backyard Mule, which is, I think, much worse than the Censored 11. Right. But I ended up getting all the Looney Tunes this uh dealer that dealt in bootleg videos, which I don't think he's in business anymore. Well, well, uh, he sold me a set for $300. Uh, and I was willing to pay a thousand dollars. I figured a buck a cartoon. If yeah, Warner now, Brothers... now, now they're just, now they're just, they're, they're like 40 to 14 different ways to watch them on the internet archive. Yeah. All listed. Yeah. But at the time I bought this set, it's 52 tape, excuse me, 52 discs. And it has every cartoon from, uh, what's the pilot? The pilot that's before seeking Bosco, the, the talking the, kid. Yeah, that one. That one's on there, and then it goes. And I would say ninety-five percent of them are in watchable shape. They're not perfect because I mean they got them from various sources, from Boomerang, from yeah. Cartoon Network, from other tapes. Uh, but there's some that are just unwatchable just because they had such a bad print. So and they're cut, I imagine too. Probably, you know, but in general, I was just happy to yeah. see at least what it was about. Because what bugs me about characters like just the standard Looney Tunes characters is, like, you would think by this point, maybe barring, like, all this in Rabbit Stew or something, that there would be a complete Bugs Bunny set. In fact, they played them all on Cartoon Network as June Bugs once, and I think they cut, like, 10 cartoons or something. Maybe it's like 12. Yeah, something like that. But I said, they're not all on video, and they still aren't to this day. And it's like... Yeah, but you know why they're not going to do it? Because if people are going to get mad, they're going to say, oh, why didn't you put out those 12? Well, well, I would have been happy with, you know, everything but those 12 if they put the, everything else. Because I said, there's a lot of non-offensive ones that still haven't been released. And yeah, so... They, they put, like... They put um they put most of them out now with that other Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the interesting thing when I watched all thousand cartoons, they put them in chronological order. Yeah. And I should have taken notes when I was watching them because it takes quite a bit of time to, to watch a thousand cartoons. And I go, ah, there's a first appearance of that, and there's a first appearance of that joke, and there's a first appearance of that joke. Right. Um, but I didn't write that down, unfortunately. But since 
the golden collections and every other collection. They just put random stuff. Here's a Bugs Bunny disc. Here's 10 cartoons. Here's some other disc. You know, I, just, yeah, I thought, I was thinking that too, because weren't they originally when they put those out? I mean, I was three when the first one came out. Yeah. But, um, but I have all six of them. Um, but weren't, the, weren't they originally going to put them out like chronologically? Yeah, I think the and reason like, why they didn't, there's a couple different reasons. I mean, Jerry Beckman goes this better than me, but, you know, uh, the reasons were if they put everything out chronologically, everybody would have to slog through a whole bunch of Boscos and Buddies before you finally got to I Haven't Got a Hat with Porky Pig. And I go, well, they could start there, you know, and then, but um, yeah. barring that, um, I always thought, my, my idea of what they should have done is done like two years at once. I don't know how exact this will work. So you put out 1930 with uh, 1951, and then you right. do 1931 with 52. But you just do, uh, wait, so 1930 with 1951, 1931 with 1952, and you just keep going on. So at least one of the two years is good. Right. <laughs> because a lot of the 30s stuff is, uh, and a lot of the 60s stuff is kind of, uh. so, right. yeah, because if they just put the 40s and 50s stuff, then everybody would say, who wants that other crap? But there's some good on the other. But anyway, I don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe they'll yeah. someday put it out. But I wanted to see it before I died. That was that was my goal. And so I said, I'm going to buy the bootleg because I don't want to see him. And I've seen him. So I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what that's what I'm saying with the Disney traders because I was I was too young to buy them. So I'm like, I'm not spending five hundred dollars on them. So once <laughs> I'm not out of college, I'm going to spend the forty dollars from a bootlegger and. That's 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 in the United States, but he's selling them from Egypt, and it's like a whole every reviewer is just like thank you, and they're all from like you know Texas, and there's right. Mm-hmm. And, I, and my thing about bootlegging is you're getting mad about something that has been out of print for 14 years. Yeah, I have no problem with bootlegging. I know people who are in charge of such things are like, you know, but. My thing is this. Okay, I'll use the Batman TV series with Adam West. I taped him off the TV. Uh-huh. Then, then I got a complete set on VHS, and then I got a complete set on DVD, and then they finally put it out legitimately, and I bought that one too. So, yeah, that's, that's and I, I got rid of the earlier versions because now I have what I wanted. So it doesn't deter me from buying the real item. It right. just is like I want it while you're – fiddling around with rights issues and music issues and whatever issues that you're having, trying to get this stuff out for me to now, enjoy. <laughs> now, what, now, what was your, um, now growing up, you mentioned in one interview that you wanted to be a cartoonist. Yeah. When did that change? <laughs> um, when? Uh, well, I'll just tell you one thing. I did too until I found out I couldn't draw. <laughs> wow. See, I mean, I, I, I was always able to draw. Yeah. And it was probably, I'll tell you when I started thinking I wanted to be a cartoonist. Let me do that. I don't know about when I stopped. Uh, but uh, I started drawing where I realized I could draw about third grade. So yeah, you, you were the opposite of me. That's when I, that's when I learned. <laughs> I have a family of no talents. They can't draw. They can't sing. They can't. Yeah. No, my family is talented, but none of us has made a career with it. I'm the closest to making a career with it. So yeah. my sister, my sister can draw, my dad can draw, my mom can draw, my brother can draw. Uh, yeah, none of us, have, 
What? Oh, my can draw. We can't draw straight yeah. lines. <laughs> but um, my dad always was of the attitude. I'll finish my story on the other thing. But my dad was always, oh, if you can't make money, why do it? So that's why my dad never did it. Um, but in my case, I didn't care about money as much as I was always picky about my own artistic talent. And I've, got, I've gotten used to it, but, you know, everybody's always hypercritical about their own talents and whatever. You know, because I wanted to, like, I, I said, I can't even draw like Sergio Aragonés, you know, as a, you know, grew in mad fame, you know, because I figured he kind of draws kind of, not childlike, but, you know, very simple, although mm-hmm. he improved over time. But I said, yeah, I could draw kind of like him, kind of, because he, he used to be kind of sloppy and stuff in his execution he's pretty he's pretty he's pretty slick now yeah he's very sophisticated now but that's because of drawing for 70 years or whatever you know um but in my case you know it's like oh can i put all this time and effort into doing it um then i wanted to be an animator and i think you know and i did get a comic strip in my high school newspaper i did get a comic strip in my junior high newspaper and I you did get a comic strip. You tried to publish a comic strip in the 2000s too. I tried to get comic strips published uh, multiple times from the 80s to the 2000s, and what then I did a I did a web comic, which you probably found if you're doing all your yeah. research. And that's probably that. the last attempt at me doing whatever. Um, I have uh, drawn. I used to draw comic parodies all the time. I just took take a sheet of paper and I just write, do a parody, like a mad magazine parody. And I still have those in a drawer over here. And um, they used to be filthy, dirty, just obnoxiously underground. Yeah. And just, just to see how dirty I could be, you know, because you know, I was a kid and, you know, and then later I thought, you know, it'd be more challenging to see how funny I can make it without being dirty. So that was interesting that way. And People still who saw them thought they were pretty funny. Now, um, I think what the problem is with me being an artist is I'm kind of lazy. <laughs> um, because a true artist, at least in my mind, what a true artist does, you, you take a piece of the... I don't even use the right equipment. So, I mean, I'm, and I'm talking about traditional equipment, not digital computers. I don't, you know, just using Bristol board, pen, ink, brush, all that stuff. Yeah. I don't like investing in all that stuff. I have, but I just like taking out a piece of paper and drawing something in pencil and or pen and I'm done. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You know, whereas other people they'll take a thing and they'll sketch it out and use a blue pencil and erase the lines and get it all better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go back and tighten it up and da, 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 da. And then they go back and ink it and da, 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 da. And it's like, to me, it's like I'm drawing the same thing three, four, five, six times. So I realized at that point, and when that point was, might have been in my 20s, um, that I don't have the discipline to be like a Charles Schultz where you just do this and yeah. grind this stuff out day after day after day after day after Charles day. Charles Schultz is actually, uh, contrary to people believe it, he's, he's probably the hardest person to draw. Oh, Peanuts characters? Yeah. 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 They're very difficult. Which, if you've seen what I post on um, the Animation Art Hall of Fakes, it's the same gallery. Yeah. It's horrible. They're all yeah. horrible. Yeah. People think they're real, but I don't know why. Yeah. And by the way, it's never the people wanting to. It's always somebody who's buying it for somebody else and has no idea how things work. There's only been a couple artists. Like, I think Sam Viviano actually can draw the Peanuts characters. 
Tom Everhart, um, I guess, can paint them. Um, but yeah, most people can't. Even the people who work with Schultz didn't draw them very well. Yeah. You know? and, and you could tell if you get the old Dell comic books that were published in the 60s or gold key ones. You know? yeah, it's I, like, I they're, they're okay. I just, yeah, but, I just got from my comic book convention two yeah. days ago. Yeah. Two days ago. Yeah. Um, the more recent ones that were by Kaboom or whatever were a little bit better, but still, uh-huh. it's still hard to draw like him. But um, yeah, so I'd say it's sometime in my 20s. I don't know exactly that I said. I really can't do this, but I tried all sorts of different strips, um, and I got wonderful rejection letters. I but I did have fun along the way. I won a couple of contests for the Cartoon Art Museum. Uh, they had a comic strip contest where you draw a cartoon, and um, I got a couple of awards a couple of years in a row at least. And so I had fun with it. But um, another, well, actually, another reason besides my criticism of my own talent is just the whole newspaper industry change. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if you know who Milton Knight is, but he yeah, even... I'm, he, I'm, I'm friends with him on Facebook. I've okay, heard. yeah. He even wrote on Facebook today, I think. He says, yeah, what, I saw what, that why too. do they still publish comic strips? And yeah. it's like, I agree with you. You know, it's like, it, that used to be, you know, for everyone, animation, comic books, everybody, the, the, the golden ticket, the big prize would to get your own right. syndicated comic strip. Not anymore. Yeah. Hank <laughs> Avery, Bob Clamp, and Chuck Jones, that's what they all wanted to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I mean, you think animation would be the... Nope, it was getting a syndicated newspaper strip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, um, now, which, I, yeah, I brought here. Now, let's talk about some of the movies you appeared in. I, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I did see that movie you made in 2005 that got rejected by film festivals. It was called Blowjob. Blowjob. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I have to ask. I saw it because I was researching. Why? (laughs) Why did we do it? Yeah, why why did that come about? Well, I mean, that's another many things that I would have liked to have done in my life. I mean, it's like, um, you know, I always think now if I was like, uh, if I was like 10 or 15 years old, something around that now, uh-huh. I'd probably be corralling friends to make little videos and putting them on, on YouTube. And they, they wouldn't be stupid ones like people tend to do, you know, like on TikTok or something like that. It would actually be a scripted movie that actually had a plot and stuff like yeah. that. And I, the, the problem is, is when I was the age to do all that stuff, 10 and 15 years old, it was still all super eight. And that stuff was really expensive. And, uh, it's just amazing to me. You could just pull out your your phone, and that's your camera. You know, you used to have to lug big equipment and load up things. You could only shoot for a few minutes at a time, and da 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 da. So, born too late, I guess. I don't know, but I mean, it, you know, that was one of the many things I wanted to do in my life. Um, my life's not over; I can still do it. But I mean, along the way, the reason I did that particular movie, the the blowjob one. <laughs> And of course, we gave it an alluring title, get people to watch the thing. Yeah, you, had, you know, you that's the reason. It, I mean, like you had to recall it, like two different things. You recalled it, downsizing. You recalled it, the interview. Yeah, well, I do that in now. case people are offended by that title. You know, I mean, there's nothing really offensive by the words "blow" or "job" or even "blow job," but it has a connotation. So, like, oh, yeah. But um, anyway. There, there was a time, and you'll probably ask me about this soon because you kind of alluded to it. Why do I have so many jobs? But there's a time where I had, and a few friends of mine were all unemployed. 
it was around 10 or 15 years ago, just because the economy was in the, in the dumps. And yeah, so we had access to this um, abandoned office space and somebody had a camera, somebody else had it. And so uh, they asked me, Mark, you know, would you like to do a movie? And this was actually, um, the script came to me like in a dream, you know, really, honestly. And I just wrote it down. It was, it was, and I drew it up as a comic book story. And I, I don't know if it was ever used as a comic book story, but somewhere I have it in a comic book form. And then I showed it to my friend who directed it. He says, can you turn that into a script? And I go, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. And that's the film you see. It is pretty much yeah. unaltered. But, you know, I would have loved to continue to make things like that. But, I mean, you know, after a while, if there's no money, it's like, you know, what do you do? It's like, um, yeah. I mean, you haven't asked me what my dream job is, but, I mean, I've thought about different dream jobs. But it, I used to think when, like, the TV show Seinfeld was on, you know, where they have everybody sitting around a round table reading a script, you know, just to write a script that everybody's sitting there enjoying mm -hmm. and of a popular TV series. I said, that would be what I'd like to do, but I don't live in Hollywood. I don't have any contacts. I've never really tried it. So it's probably never going to happen, but you know, that seems like fun. <laughs> right. I saw the same thing except for watching reruns of the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. I'm like, like that's fun. Then I'm like, like, you know what? This is fun. But it doesn't make money right away. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like I'm like, I'm like, there's, I had, this is a true story. I one time, I went to an old boys high school. Yeah. And the girls' school across the street, there were some kids at that school who were really yeah. tall. Okay. And, and they had that in my high school too. And so one of the girls says, was convinced that I swear to God, this is true. She was convinced that everyone in the city of Los Angeles, not just Hollywood, not the one who works most, was rich. Everyone who had ever been in a movie lived in Los Angeles and was rich. I'm like, <laughs> no. By the way, the same person didn't know where France was on the map. So, okay. and I was just like, no, that's not how this works. You don't appear in a movie. Most people who appear in movies are not rich. Right. Right. <laughs> Which now, now I have this list of jobs that you've had. They range from ISB Channel yeah. to you know, to United Cable to the Metro. <laughs> I have this long list, and I didn't even finish it. Somebody was asking me the other day, "Why do you put them all on LinkedIn?" I mean, you're you're killing yourself for getting a job, but it's like no, um, I, I find I find your jobs a different way. Okay, I went through the Internet Archive. And then go into your website from 2001. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I just internet archived your website 2001 and said right there, resume, pressed it. And like the resume seemed to change every time you go back. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Well, I mean, I don't know anybody who actually works, gets a job, stays in the career for 60 years and retires or whatever it is. I'll you know. What? You can say it, Matt Magazine. Yeah, but, I mean, now. If you started now, you know, or even when I did, you know. So, I mean, my dad even jumped around, not as much as I have. Um, yeah. But I didn't even jump. I, I started work in 1985. 
Right. And um, throughout college, I just worked in the college bookstore. So I worked at two bookstores because I went to two colleges. Um, then I got my first real job, and I worked at Channel 44 in San Francisco. And what I wanted to do at that list. What? So it was right there on the list. Yeah. And what I wanted to do when I got in that job was I, I was done wanting to be a cartoonist, even though behind the scenes I did try. But I, I didn't want to be an animator anymore. Uh, I, I do have one question I got to yeah. interrupt you. One of the reasons where you wanted to be an, didn't want to be an editor was it also because during that time in animation, it was just kind of a dump? That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like I wanted to be in the animation. And my sister went through the same epiphany. She wanted to be a fashion designer, but she really wanted to be Edith Head. Right. You know, and it's like there are no Edith Heads in Hollywood anymore. Right. Um, uh, I wanted to be like a Frizz Freeling, a Chuck Jones, whatever. I wanted to be somebody... You know, making a bunch of funny cartoons, Tex Avery, whatever, fill in the blank. Right. You know, it's like, that doesn't exist anymore. Filmation. You didn't want to be stuck at Filmation. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned Milton Knight. Milton Knight, and I've even told him before many times, I said, you lived exactly what I wanted to do, and I'm now glad I didn't do it. <laughs> and he, he kind of shrugged and said, yeah, because he's only three years older than me. And uh, I, I have another friend who's a few years older than me. He's Mike Cazala. He did the same thing. He went into the animation. They all worked for Filmation. They all worked for DePatty. Well, I don't know if they worked for DePatty Trilling, but uh, they all worked for Hanna-Barbera. Everybody worked for You know, they all did it and everything like that. In the tail end of when they still kind of did everything in the United States, and they still had a little bit of creative freedom, but you saw everything kind of... Yeah. And... When I decide this is too much work and too much effort for a bunch of garbage on TV, I mean, I was I felt this when I graduated high school in '84. Uh, it's it's just going to get worse. Now I didn't know in the next few years we'd have Ducktales and we'd the have Simpsons. The Simpsons and Animaniacs and yeah, Tiny Toons and Batman Adventures and all that stuff. But even like now it's like in SpongeBob and Ren and Stimpy and all that stuff. But it's like I see shows like how they made Ren and Stimpy and stuff like that now. And it's like, I wouldn't have fit in. I'm just not that kind of personality. I mean, I probably would have socked John Chris Felici in the face just because he's so obnoxious and overbearing, you know? So, and this is long before he got in trouble for things, you know, it's yeah. just his general demeanor. It was like, it didn't fit with me. You know, I saw the same thing. I remember when I was younger, listening to audio commentary with him. And I was like, and I remember with him and Eddie Fitzgerald, I was like, kind of like Eddie Fitzgerald, but he, the other guy is kind of pretentious. <laughs> and I didn't know, but I was just like skip over those because I thought he was kind of, it was kind of, it's kind of mean. Well, I used to do imitations of the people, and I did this for Jerry Beck, but it's been so long. I'd have to re-listen to the, the Golden Collection, but I, I imitated everybody else's commentaries because I wanted to do a commentary, and and Jerry asked, Jerry said this one time. And at the time, I was a little bit insulted, but he said he wasn't meaning to be insulting. He just said, you have to be asked, you know? And it's like, you know, I said, well, how pompous is that? You have to be asked. You know, it's like, they should know that I like cartoons. I should be able to do one, especially. And this is where I talked to Jerry about this. As I said, like John Chris Felusi. This is John Chris Felusi. I remember this imitation. Well, this is John Chris Felusi watching a Bob Clampett cartoon. You know, opening credits. 
This is John Christopher Lucy. Look at this cartoon. Oh my God, that's so funny. Ah, wow. Ah. Seven minutes later. Ah, wow. Bob Clams is great. That's all, folks. <laughs> and I imitated, uh, you know, all, all of them, you know, Ford and uh, Barrier and everybody. <laughs> you know, just because they all had. You know, I even did Jerry Beck, you know, I was like, this is Jerry Beck, and I have to, you know, he had a very kind of clinical way of doing it. I think he's kind of loosened up because I told him, about it. I thought he did better on the Fatty Freeling ones, but on the Looney Tunes, this is Jerry Beck. And I actually I, like Jerry, and I like... But he's I very informative, like, so I, I couldn't like, really I like Mike Barrier also because Mike Barrier had those great audio stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that, but I, I would imitate it like this, I go... This is Michael Barrier. Michael Barrier. I, I have this interview voice. with uh, Fritz Freeling from 1942, and I'm going to play it for you right now. <laughs> it's like it was I, poor I fidelity. I was, I, was a, I was exaggerating. How, was, how does a conversation of, I'm going to imitate the people in the Golden Collections come up in a conversation with Jerry Beck? Um, because I wanted to do those commentaries, you know, and that was his, his response. And I said, I can do them better than that. In fact, I can imitate. I was down in San Diego when I said, it was funny, but it it is funny that I did eventually get to do some commentaries. Uh, so, and I was asked, I didn't, you know, anytime, the only time I tried to do one where I asked somebody, can I do the commentaries? Um, I was lined up to do the commentaries for Tweety and Sylvester Mysteries DVD. And then they canceled the commentaries before they put the DVD out. So, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, and I, um, which one of the things that surprised me was that you were not in the commentaries for, which by the way are good. The com- the 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 novel tune set that Thunderbean did. Yeah, I've never done any of the. Yeah, novels. which which I thought about why, but then I remember also because they had already released those those commentaries were holdovers from the other set. Yeah. Well, also, I, you know, I'm not close, close, chummy, chummy friends with Stanchfield. I mean, yeah. it's like, I think we've talked to each other maybe once. It's not like I'm avoiding him or anything. It's like, no. not like he's avoiding me. We just don't really cross paths that much. I mean, I'll buy his stuff. I buy his stuff all the time, but you know, it doesn't yeah. mean I yeah. actually talk he'll, to him. He'll appear, if, he, if he asks you, you let him appear on the show. Yes. <laughs> Steve, come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> If you, bring, if you bring him on, I'll talk to him. Yeah, I've seen him on uh, Stu Shostak's show, and, you know, he's been on others, so. Yeah. yeah. he's Yeah, and now my next question for you is, why move to Oregon? I was asking, why move to Oregon? Um, well, at this point, it's kind of like a big why, but the, the original reason was um, I had a different girlfriend six years ago, and her daughter was living up here, and... Uh, she had some friends that moved up here and I was living at my dad's house because I moved back home after my divorce and I was staying way too long. In my opinion, my dad didn't mind me being there. I wanted to leave. But if you are not familiar with the San Francisco Bay area, it's probably more pricey than LA. It's just really expensive because that's where all the high tech engineers are. Excuse me for Apple and for Google and for name any high tech, company you know about, HP, whatever, they're all home based there in Silicon Valley. And as a result, it's like, and I wasn't working in it. 
you know, I was working at UC, all my jobs, I worked at newspapers, I worked at, you know, I worked on the peripheral of like high tech companies, but I never made the big bucks. And so if I was ever going to get out on my own, this is my opportunity. So um, I moved up here with a girlfriend. Uh, it didn't work out after three years and she gave me the boot. <laughs> Got a different girlfriend. And now we're actually contemplating now moving back to California. So there you go. But not to the Bay Area, probably more in the middle of the state where it's a little less expensive. So anyway. Now, my next question for you is I'm going to ask you about um, your books. Okay. I'm not going to talk to you about all of them, but I'm going to talk to you about specific ones. First of all, I am going to ask you about two, two specific different things. Um, one of them is, I remember when I was doing my doc, the, doc, the thing I helped with Amber, which I really hated that people kept crediting me for, for being, being heavily involved in it. I was just like her chief cheerleader and have a director things. On our Bill Scott documentary? Yeah. No. yeah. And the other thing I did was I helped her with her John Sutherland part. Mm-hmm. Which that's why Harry McCracken, Jerry Beck was invited also, but he had, uh, of course he had just gotten married when that documentary premiered. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Beck, um, that's why Carl Cohen was there. That's why Paul Javeri was there. Um, that's why they were at that premiere. Mm-hmm. So now you told me that you were going to make a John Sutherland book, mm-hmm. right? A John Sutherland book. Yeah. Which that became the the Hogan's Alley article. No, flip that around. Um, I okay. now I was just going to ask, how did the article itself come about? Okay, how the article came about? That was a a, a request because I was writing for Hogan's Alley already, or that might have been my first article for Hogan's Alley. I'm trying to think. I could be have this in the wrong order, but he wanted an article about John Sutherland. That's what I remember on that one. Yeah. Um, whether it was my first article or second, I can't remember. It seems like it was my first. It might have been my first one. But I had written stuff for other publications prior to that. Yeah. Comic Book Marketplace was my first. And uh, you had done your But uh, when Hogan Zali wanted me to write, he says, can you do an article about John Sutherland? And I didn't even know who he was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you got to remember, this is before Amid Amidi did his book. There was yeah. nothing about this guy. And I hated that I got the assignment to do it like a year after the guy died. But I got in contact with his son, and his son told me everything about it. But I could have actually talked to his dad, the real John Sutherland, like a year earlier. And he was like with it till the end, but, you know, oh well. Um, But I didn't know uh, anything about him. And then I found out that he did these little cartoons for Captain Kangaroo children's show called yeah. you know, the most important person. And I said, Oh, cause I never knew who did those. I never paid attention to who did what too much when I was a little kid. You know, I just saw this stuff. And then, then the dots started to connect. And so, um, I talked to John Sutherland Jr. I talked to Bill Melendez. I talked to Seems like I talked to a couple of other people. You, you, you used some interviews with Bill Scott, I know. Yeah, that was archival, of course, even then. Um, yeah. And I did a little research about UPA because I knew a lot of the same people worked with both. I found Sutherland worked for Disney on uh, Fantasia and Bambi, at least. I don't remember everything. And when it got time to do books... Since I did so much research at the time, I thought it would be natural that I could turn it into a book because 
the downside about Hogan's Alley is it's a very niche magazine. So unless people like you and I read it, nobody knows about it. The average person, yeah. you know. Um, I wish that magazine was more ad- was better advertised because they yeah. could get a lot more people to read it. Yeah. Well, I wish it was just on the newsstands as a regular publication, but I get it. You know, yeah. I published a fanzine for 21 years. It's tough. It's, it is it, a thick, and I, yeah. I think unlike your fanzine, Tolkien yeah. Sally is a thick magazine. Yeah. That and the Disney annual Institute review books yeah. that did your against us, those are thick magazines. Those are magazines. Those are just yearly annuals. Yeah. And even if you put all every issue of Harveyville I did in one year, um, it might come close to about a hundred pages. Right. Um, but you know, I was doing four a year back then, right. so yeah. <laughs> um, but it is a tough business. But I always, you know, you, you know, you talk about career aspirations. I was always wanting to be in publishing or in cartoons or something. And it, yeah. You know, the only thing that kind of I ended up doing, which is kind of odd because I didn't originally think I was any good, uh, also was writing. And, you know, so I never thought I'd be writing books. And then I realized why I ended up liking and doing writing because I said, oh, I get it. Because in school, they always say, write a review or write a book report well, about this. Write, write a book or report about this book that you hate. You know, I mean, it's just this long, dreary, uh, right. nothing novel that you don't want to read, you know, and, and that's what I thought writing was. And it's like, well, my interest is less on novels and more on biographies and autobiographies of real life people, right. you know, and um, mainly actors and people in the in the right. in show business, some in, you know, comic books and other things. But, you know, that's. And that's generally what I read now. You know, so I try to do that, and I would fit it in when school. It, it got weird when I did a, a Simpsons clip in a school in a in a Catholic. I went to a Catholic high school, so I did a Simpsons clip and a prayer. <laughs> the teacher hated it. Deacon loved it. So the teacher loved it. Yeah. So, I mean, I I don't know if I answered my the earlier question you asked about me jumping John around. Sullivan. It's going to be a book, you said, and and um, you said you didn't say why it didn't become a book. Oh, why it didn't become a book? Um, yeah, if I leave you hanging on anything, just go back and ask it. Um, yeah. John Sutherland, I wanted it to become a book. Um, I tend to work with Bear Manor a lot. Um, I'm trying to look around to other publishers, but um, he wasn't very interested. I.e. I don't think he knew who he was. So he did, you know, he didn't grasp that he could actually publish a book about John Sutherland. I thought he was a very fascinating person once I got to know who he was, but I wasn't good in convincing the publisher that that was a good book to do. And I didn't feel like self-publishing it. So it just kind of went away. And then, like I said, that book by Amid Amidi came out about um, mid-century animation or something. modern. It's really good. uh, Yeah. And I said, well, I mean, he didn't go as in-depth as I did, but he did talk about him quite a bit, and so I just kind of left it there. I mean, the Hogan's Alley there, article is there for anybody who wants to read it. If you want me to do a book, I'll do a book, but you got you got to be interested as a publisher. If you're not, you know, obviously I can't convince somebody to do a book, to publish a book, you know. That... And then the other, the other two things I wanted to talk to you two more about two different articles you did for Hogan's Alley, because I actually have your Hogan's Alley books. Um, oh, okay. 
um, so um, your ABC of hand tools article. <laughs> this was interesting because I read this thing not knowing what those films were. I had never seen yeah. them. Well, I think I talk about it in the article, but the, the basic thing was I had this book called the, I, forgive me if I got the title wrong, but it's like the Encyclopedia of Disney Animated Char Cartoon Characters. And it's supposed right. to have every character ever made up until like whenever the book came out. And even minor characters that, you know, are only on screen for seconds or whatever. It's like, and, a, DC uh, it's, like a, it's like a DC wrote an encyclopedia. Yeah, so I mean, I, I remember like uh, the, it had the Great Mouse Detective and it had a, a, a drawing of the hopelessly merry juggling octopus. And I said, I don't even remember that character in that film. You know, that's when the book came out. I've seen it since. So yeah, there he is. But I mean, I'm just saying there, that's how obscure it got, juggling octopus and Great Mouse right. Detective. So I'm looking through the book. And my dad always talked about that there was this character he saw in a film when he was in high school called, uh, he didn't know the name of it, but he said it had this character named Primitive Pete. And, this, and I had the book and I was thumbing through it. And he said, is it this reason and emotion that in this film, you know, there's these two little caveman characters? And my dad said, no, it's not that. It was, a, 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 you know. And so it became like a sticking point because my dad kept saying, and my dad has done that through my, all my entire life. He's, like, pointed out things that I didn't believe were true. And more often than not, it actually was true. It's just that nobody had done any research on it. My dad just remembered something. And right. it was tough finding that film. Not so much maybe now. Well, I don't know. Even now. I had to do – this was before DVDs. Um, I found I mean, now, out now, – Now I can just – we can just all look it up online. Yeah, it wasn't. There's no internet then. Uh, I finally tracked it down. That was made by General Motors, just by sheer luck. Um, and I contacted General Motors. I think they're still in Detroit, and they had a copy of it on VHS in the reference library. And they were not willing to let me have a copy of it because they thought I'd just put it out and bootleg it and blah blah blah. blah. So. Um, then I started going through uh, college libraries. Fortunately, I was living near Stanford University. And strangely, miraculously, whatever, they had a copy of it on VHS also. And I could check it out, you know, for like, you know, I think a, a two days or something crazy like that. And my dad actually had the ability to copy a VHS cassette. So... I checked this thing out, and we copied it onto another cassette, and then I returned it back to the library. And I watched this thing over and over, writing notes about it, and I took screen grabs, and that became the article. But, I mean, that was a tough one because I didn't believe that it existed. Um, I, I think I found out that there was a booklet about that, so that kind of was like a piece of the puzzle that was issued around the same time. But um, because... Disney doesn't fully own it. It's co-owned by General Motors. There's no, like, real rush for Disney to put it out. It's also highly dated. And present Disney seems to not like, even have like, any interest. Like, like, they could throw it on Disney+. Plus. You know, why not? You know, but they won't. Yeah. Yeah. They could have thrown it on the treasure sets. They could have, like, yeah, they the, could have done that, rarities. too. The Disney <laughs> rarities volume where they had, like, you know... The Alice comedies, and they threw in like you know Ferdinand the Bull. I would I would have tracked it, but they wouldn't throw it there. 
Well, even on, on the rare, I don't know if it was that one, but one of them they did put like a few obscure Reason Disney things. Like, like I remember um, uh, How to Rivet or something like that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think, I don't know if it's on there, but there's like they did the story of menstruation, you know, just bizarre films like that. <laughs> you know, it's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, you know, now, and now with you know, YouTube, everything's there. You the third know, so. article I wanted to mention was your interview with Thurl Ravenscroft. Yeah. <laughs> how did that become out and i also want to ask you about one of the questions okay was it burning in your head to ask him by the way first was it burning in your head to ask him do you eat the cereal i don't know if it's burning in my question my head it just came up yeah because i was thinking you know it, they always talk about you know you've seen it in different right you know parodies of people doing advertising you know like you know that they they promote the product and then they you know they'll try it and they don't even like it you know so it was just my thought this here's this guy who's been advertising it for like 40 years or 50 years or however long it was did he ever try it or did he say ah that's kid stuff i don't like frosted flakes i don't like sweet cereals whatever you know so i was just curious so it was a it was a question that came along for that and yeah. that was the that was the only reason of doing it you know just to see if that, he actually that, endorsed the product what how did that interview come out how why? Oh, that one, uh, the publisher, John uh, Tom Heinches of uh, Hogan's Alley, he wanted an interview with him, mm-hmm. which I found quite odd. And he said I could do it. You know, he gave it to me. Yeah, I found it quite odd for two reasons. One, um, Hogan's Alley is totally into animation. I mean, it is, but it's yeah, more into comic strip art. So I thought it was kind of odd of him wanting to get an interview with Thurl Ravenscroft. Like, I don't think he's done, like, he never did a June Foray interview or a Mel Blanc interview. You know, people they could have done, you know. And But yeah. he wanted Thurl Ravenscroft. So I said, all right, I'll 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 dig him up, you know. And That's what's cool about it, though. I didn't know where to find him. And, I, you know, actually, the one good thing about, uh, I don't know if it's easy now because, you know, enough time's passed, but, you know, elderly voice artists and you know because when i interviewed keith scott he said the same thing i said how did you find Daz butler he says i just looked it up and i found his address i wrote him a letter so it's just like i looked it up and i found his phone number i called him up you know it's like nowadays every movie unlisted or private or whatever yeah but uh so i interviewed it Uh, the amazing thing about the whole thing is i was still recording interviews on cassette tapes and if you've ever recorded anything off the telephone with a cassette tape, the fidelity is pretty bad. Okay. Yeah, like today's digital recorders are far superior. Yeah. So, that's all because I've, you get all this all hiss. I, that's all I've needed to use. Yeah. But have you ever heard a cassette tape? There's like all this hiss and everything like yeah, that. Yeah. I know. That I've heard a cassette yeah. So even, even if you're listening to an old record album that, you know, you know pre-recorded cassette of some yeah. album, it's still kind of inferior to vinyl yeah. or cd or anything else um at least i feel that way and uh anyway so there is no good equipment really i had a, a machine that plugged right in the phone but it was not the best in thorough i forgot how old he was at the time he was probably in his 90s at that point um didn't speak above a whisper and uh the only time you ever heard of it, if you play the tapes back it's and then you'd hear me say, well, 
Did you ever eat the cereal? <laughs> wow, that's really great. You know, the, so you hear me fine. You don't hear him at all, except when he does an invitation to Tony the Tiger. Suddenly, they're great, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, so that's really the only thing. So I was freaking out because I had listened to this interview. Fortunately, I mean, I recorded this interview and I couldn't play it back or listen to it. Fortunately, I had taken copious notes while I was recording it because I thought in the off chance, Maybe with this won't record very well. I just was like having a bad yeah. premonition that came true. Um, and so, um, and since I played it back, like literally after I got on the phone with him, I was able to piece it together where I remembered pretty much what he said and filled in the blanks, you know, and if I played it over and over, I could kind of make it out. But it's like, unfortunately, it's not of a, a quality that, you know, I don't even think any high tech equipment could clear up all the hiss and everything to make it audible. So what you get in that uh, article is what it was. And turns out it was the final interview with him, but I didn't know that at the time. I think he died a year later or something. By the way, I did forget to ask you one thing mm. that was besides this that I was going to ask you before I got to your books, which was mm. you were put in a, in a, in a, you were put as one of the most famous Saratogans. <laughs> They were doing, there's a Saratoga Museum. Saratoga, if you don't know, is a pretty small town. It's mainly businesses. There's like one street that has, I mean, it mainly residential. There's one street really that has businesses. And it's, it's a little hoity-toity. It's, it's a rich area, let's be blunt. And I didn't know I was in a rich area growing up. I just figured... You know, I'm living where I'm living. It wasn't until later. But anyway, um, they have this little museum that's uh, that exists out of, like, a really old building. Because Saratoga is a pretty old city. It goes back to the 1800s sometime. And they made this advertisement saying, we're going to do a sink for famous Saratogans. And I said, well, I just wrote a book about total television, so I kind of pigeonholed my way into it because I – I don't know how famous it was. Yeah. <laughs> but especially if you read your Wikipedia page, yep. it reads it as you had your own exhibit about in a museum about famous Saratogans. Yes. So basically, it reads as if they have statues of you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, the own exhibit is they had my book on display and maybe a couple of Yeah, yeah. You know, but it, but it wasn't a it, statue. It, it literally states on Wikipedia that that you were honored with, you were honored as a, as an exhibit. Yeah. In it as not 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 in an exhibit. It says as an exhibit. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I wrote that or what. <laughs> but anyway, um, the thing I I felt that was to my benefit, at least at the time, not true now, is I was actually still living in Saratoga, you know, because you know they had other people like Steven Spielberg graduated from my high school. Well, he got out of there a second he could you know get his feet to universal studios he was not in saratoga very long in fact he didn't even grow up in saratoga he grew up in phoenix so um and then at the time there was a couple olympic people that you know but none of them lived in saratoga anymore and uh, so you but you, you were there i was actually there so yeah. that's why that's why i kind of said hey i'm yeah. actually here you know yeah, now now Let's go to Total Television. You have said in other interviews, but not on your podcast, how your Total Television book came about. 
Did it originate from the Hogan's Alley article? Yes. Okay. But here, here's the, the course of events. Um, I think originally I was going to, I wanted to write, I like to write about Rocky and Bullwinkle. I, Jay Ward is my first love over Total Television. Yeah. Then Keith Scott, Keith Scott finally put out his book, Moose That Roared, and I said, well, I can't top that. I don't want to. So I'll probably never do a Jay Ward book unless I did something specifically that Jay Ward. Yeah, I mean, Hart one too, because that's that one's already. Yeah, but even Gerald Van Sitters did that. Yeah. So it would it, have to be if I did a Jay Ward book, it'd have to take a different angle. Like even Amber's thing, if that was a book, you know, yeah. I could do a Bill Scott book, let's say, but I don't really want to do that either. But I mean, I always like to have a different angle on something. Right. So. The, I the always line, wanted to do a Fractured Flickers book. That's what I wanted to do. I, yeah. wanted to do. I don't know yeah. why, but I want to write a book on Fractured Flickers. Well, you can. I mean, he did. Have, he only had a chapter, so you can embellish on it, because, I mean, that's yeah. what I did with my DePatty Freeling book. You know, Jerry Beck did a Pink Panther book, but he didn't talk about the TV cartoons, so that right. led to that one. Now, going back to Total Television, so um, after... This is why I think the John Sutherland book, the, the John Sutherland article is first. Yeah. Um, is because Tom asked me at that point what I'd like to write. And I actually said, based because of the Keith Scott book, um, I said, I want to know what happened to the people who made uh, those total television cartoons. Because in the 60s, you know, they had King Leonardo and they're doing Tennessee Tuxedo and Underdog, and then suddenly they're gone. And there's nothing about them. You, you know, if you watch the cartoons, they don't have credits. And so, I, so I just took it upon myself. That's what I'd like to find out. And so Tom said, all right, write an article about it. So it became an article. And I, and I managed um, to track down Buck Biggers and Chet Stover because they had just written a book called How Underdog Was Born. So that was like their version of the book. So it's, you know... But I didn't like their book as much because it didn't answer all my questions. Yeah. It only, it's a good book, but it only really talks about literally how up to underdog. So it didn't say whatever happened to the studio. And that's what I wanted to know. And, it, you know, even when I interview, it's like, why does everybody want to know that? I go, I want to know that. I want to know what happened. Why aren't you not, why aren't you not making cartoons now that I loved when I was a kid? You know, <laughs> and you know, they didn't see it that way. They, you know, they were just like, oh, you know, we made these cartoons in the 60s and we became too tough to make them. We didn't make them anymore. You know, it's like they didn't think about it. You know, they didn't think about fandom, you know. That, and and um, I wanted to ask, and I just want to ask this for my own personal <laughs> curiosity. What did you and what did they think about the underdog film? Um, but <laughs> I, can, I can already imagine what you thought of it, but... What do I think of it? Yeah. Um, if it wasn't Underdog, I think it would be a greater movie. Oh, I, I, mean, thought, I thought they were going to say you just hated it. But, you know, if, if, it, if it wasn't based upon Underdog, it's not that bad of a it's just basic super dog superhero story. You know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's for kids, but I mean, the fact that they tied it into Underdog, then you have to kind of think of it on that level and you got, you know, because yeah. I'm not too big on live action remakes. I mean, sometimes they can be successful, yeah. but a lot of times it's like, why? Why are you doing this? Why can't you make a theatrical cartoon? Yeah. You know? I, I actually hated the Chipmunks movie 
but I had to rewatch it. I rewatched it somehow. Somehow. For the recent one. The first or... one. The first one I don't hate. I kind of yeah. I don't hate it yeah. because it's got all that innuendo, in, like innuendos to the Alvin show. I actually like that because yeah. then you can actually ignore the. It's good enough. To, there's enough there to ignore the movie and how bad the movie is. Yeah. To just pay attention to the hidden stuff to yeah. where you can like the first one. Yeah. No, I'll agree. I yeah, didn't see all four I, of those. Way, I only saw yeah, the first two. You know? By the way, um, before we get to what Buckbears, what do you think about the Casper movie? Because that freaked me out as a kid. <laughs> I like it, but I don't love it because I, I always envision a Casper movie being set in the Enchanted Forest with Wendy and everything like that. So actually, of the okay, the, right, the yeah. live action Casper movies that were made during that time, I like the Casper meets Wendy the one the best. So the, okay, I'm gonna tell you right now. When I was a kid, I saw that. That scene where that where Casper's in the bed with the girl creeped me out. <laughs> you mean the original one with Christina Yeah, yeah, it Ritchie. scared the hell out of me. Huh. And I, mm. and looking back, and you look at photos, and you're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's what I, I felt that they kind of shouldn't have gone there and stuff like that. But, I mean, I, I, I appreciated it. Like, the Harvey family hated that film. They didn't like the Lazarus yeah. machine. They didn't want anything to do with Casper being dead and coming back to life and stuff like that. And I, I get it, you know. So they hate yeah. that film. Leonard Malton hated that film. If you look at his film book, it says bomb. Well, there's some funny stuff. I, I, so I don't know if I'd give it a bomb, but I wouldn't give it four stars either. You yeah, know, I'd probably give I, it like two and a half, three, maybe, you know. So I, I have, yeah, I have, I'm gonna, we're going to get to Harvey in a second, but first I want to know, what did Buck Biggers think about the butt and chest and think about that? Um, well, when I talked to them about it, um, Chet Stover didn't really say anything about it. Buck Biggers acted like he liked it. Now, I'm doing my new TTV scrapbook that's coming out any day now. And uh, inter- I, I talked to Victor right. Burke. When can we get a sign? When can I get a, buy, buy a signed copy? If I have a copy, I'll get you one. <laughs> I don't have one yet. If you have a digital copy, I'll sign the computer. Anyway, no, it's not as fun. DocuSign. Anyway, uh, Victoria Biggers said that uh, his, her dad enjoyed it. When I interviewed Buck, he said he enjoyed it. I think also he had a little piece of the action, so I think he enjoyed it on that level. But I th- he felt that they did a reasonable job. Now, the person you need to ask, which I think I do put it in my original Total Television book, is Joe Harris. You know, he hated it. He didn't understand why they made a live-action underdog film. At all. You thought what I thought. Yeah. And for me, I probably never would have watched it if I wasn't doing the book. That's the honest truth about it. There's sometimes, I don't know if you have situations like this, that you watch something because you're writing an article or you're doing some research, so you have to watch it. But otherwise, you probably would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. And so that was one of them. I probably never would have watched an underdog movie. Then, like I said, if it wasn't tied to underdog, it's it's not a bad super dog kids flick, you know. But it, the it, fact it, that it, it is it, underdog, it, it, it's it, it, like a little bit better of a crypto film. It, it, it would still yeah, be yeah. bad, but yeah, or just you know, not even related to Superman, just a powerful superhero type dog that had nothing to do with Superman or underdog or anything, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's not a bad little kids flick, you know. It's not, you know, very sophisticated, but 
There's a couple now, of good scenes. In for there. my next question is, I got two questions for you about Harvey Comics. First of all, is when you're doing <laughs> when you're doing a panel, I've talked about Harvey Comics, and I've even been asked this question: is is I'm sure you know what I'm going to ask. Is Casper the ghost of Richie Rich? <laughs> How many times have you even asked that question? Um, enough to be put into to a book. You know, there's a book called Do Elephant Jump by David Feldman, and he asked me that question. I gave a very thorough answer on that, so really want to read that answer. It's pretty much the same answer today. And what really, it, it existed before that Simpsons episode, but yeah. that Simpsons episode is really what caused everybody to think that. You yeah. know, because really, all the characters look alike, which is actually part of the reason I, I was enamored with the Harvey thing. It's like, wow, they all have the same face. It doesn't matter who it is, little Audrey, little Dot, uh, yeah. Wendy, Casper, they all have the same face, they're just different hair, different uh, clothes, you yeah. know, and so I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, like even uh, Peanuts, Charlie Brown characters don't look so identical, you know, no. some of them look, you know, have smaller noses, some have pointy noses, some have little uh, lines around their eyes that way, you know, <laughs> but the Harvey characters, they all look the same, unless you're talking about like Baby Huey or something. Or Herman and Catnip. Yeah, but, but they but they the really kid, kept the their... kid characters all had the same basic face. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. I actually always I never cared for Richie Rich, but I liked Casper. Yeah, because I thought that Casper could something interesting, and I only liked Casper like you know in the early because Casper could be interesting because then someone could get scared of him or something like that. Yeah, but I mean the problem what I hate about Richie Rich was in the beginning was. It's called the poor little rich boy. I just always thought that, that was kind of pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but I but I never picked up a Richie Rich comic book because I'm like, who does this kid think he is? Well, I mean, it's supposed to kind of show that he's not so big on himself. The funny thing is, later versions say the richest kid in the world. He's like, screw you, I'm rich, you know, kind of like that. So, you know. Richie Rich was never my favorite, although when he did the adventure stories, like in the mid-70s, right. uh, they're kind of like the adventures of Tintin, and even Ernie Cologne, one of the artists on those, said that he was thinking Tintin the whole time he was doing them, and I loved yeah. Tintin as a kid. So, yeah, I, I got it for that, but Casper was always my favorite, because I always tended to like monster stuff. Yeah, and the you thing know, about so. Casper is, Casper, I think that I think what I like about Casper also is they kind of kept the thing thing in the famous studio is that even when they, even like somewhere in the story, they'd have some little gag where like you know, somebody some some older person would just get scared of him. Right. So, well, I didn't like those as much. I mean, I watched them, but right. uh, you know, they're very repetitious where they're going oh, right. ghost. You know, <laughs> like, okay, here we go now, again. Now, the next book I wanted to talk about, though, is the Harvey Comics Companion. Was that just, you wrote a book about, how did, did that just come out, like somebody asked you, or did it just like, and you wrote the Harveyville Fun Times, why not? When I was doing Harveyville Fun Times, that was the first time I thought about, if I do enough material on this, I can make a book. And it's amazing to me, I could go on for an hour on this, so I won't, but um, it's amazing to me, there had been so many aborted attempts of doing a history of Harvey Comics book. Uh, by various publishers, and I started to peddle my version around, and over the years, nobody said, everybody said, oh, nobody's interested in Harvey Comics, you know, so, like, so 
finally, um, I gave up on the idea. Um, I did do a best of Harvardville fun times because I figured it, it was an it was yeah it was an exercise to see if I could do my own book. That's all it was because a friend of mine had uh, a Disney fanzine about theme park attractions, and he compiled them into a book uh, published by Lulu, which is one of the first self-publishing things that you could do, you know, for nothing. And it's like, it still exists. And so I said, maybe I could do that. And I could do a best of Harvey Milk fun times. So, and I said, well, that's the compromise because nobody wants to publish my Harvey history book. So at least I'll get that one out. And it, it kept going after that. It's like people, you know, even Jerry Beck was working on one with Leslie Cabarja at one point. It didn't happen. Would you help on those dark horse stuff too those came out those did come out but they were going to do an actual harvey history book too never came out and i even have the the proofs of those <laughs> i shouldn't say that jerry becker's what you have it no leslie sent them to me so i have i have a bunch of stuff that could have been published you know by various people and it never happened um finally i stopped publishing Harveyville in 2011, and it was about 2014 that Tomorrow said, we're doing all these companion books. They have like a DC companion, a Fawcett companion, a Warren companion, whatever companion. Would you like to do a Harvey one? I said, of course. So I was kind of bummed because a lot of people had died by that point, so I couldn't interview them. So I had to rely on older interviews and stuff. It turned out all right because I got other interviews. But then they got cold feet about it and finally i just pulled it from them because i don't know why they had cold feet you'd have to ask them yeah you know they couldn't get the rights to the reproduction rights for images and stuff so they were worried about that and they didn't think anybody'd buy it and so finally i went to the old reliable bear manor he said i'll buy i'll publish it now and so that's how it came out so um now (laughs) I have to ask you a quick question, which I actually got this, which I'm going to be honest, I think it's even better when you read it by itself. When I bought your total television book, Sign, the first thing I bought was the audiobook too. <laughs> what was it like to have, to, to figure out to yourself that like, man, my book is now an audiobook? <laughs> well, that wasn't my choice either. I agreed to it, but I mean, I wanted to do the actual audio version. <laughs> and he didn't want me to do it at the time, which I thought was weird. Because I said, I'm the author, and I'm willing to do it. Yeah. So it was actually more difficult. I don't know if I'm answering your question about it, but, you know, I didn't even think about audio editions. But when he did do it, it was a pain in the neck because the guy that recorded it, he didn't know how to pronounce any of the names. So I'm listening through it, and I said, well, this isn't pronounced like this. This I can't even remember all the different names and words. So you listened to your whole book? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, and I had to correct it. So the correct version is the version, but it was just, you know, if you had me do the audio version in the first place, I would have done it correctly, but oh well. Now, next couple books, uh, to Patty Freeling, how did that come about? Was it? Um, that one was based because Jerry Beck did a big Pink Panther book, and he only talked about the theatrical cartoons, and I really wanted to know more about the TV cartoons. There's one page where he shows a picture of the Super Six, I go, I remember that show. Why didn't he talk about that? Right. You know, it, it, he explained because I talked to him about it. It's like, you know, he was under contract with DK Publishing, and they wanted a lot of big pictures. That's what it's a, 
it's essentially a picture book. It has yeah, some read the Looney Tunes one too. It has some information in it, but it's like it's more picture book than like mine to Patty Freeling book. Yeah. Um so you know, I and you know, I was thinking about all the different studios and I try to do this. Um yeah, I could have written a a Hanna Barbera book. There's other Hanna Barbera books. Yeah, yeah I could have written a book. I think Disney. I still, I still, and I hard cherry back by this. I still think he wrote the best HP book. The big, best what? The best Hanna Barbera book. Oh yeah, because, yeah. Because yeah. you open that book up, and that's like, yeah. that's what people like us think about Hanna Barbera. Right. Yeah, and I agree. But I mean, yeah. if you want the complete story, there's probably four. Decent big books of Hanna Barbera. Mike Mallory wrote a good one. Yeah, and if you get all four of them, yeah, it's pretty much covered. Yeah. Now, could I go and make another one? Sure, but it's like they said, I don't really want to do a Hanna Barbera book because I thought to do it properly, it's going to be a big ass book because they had so many series. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Which there is one book. If, if you the- want to make it thorough, I mean, if you're just yeah. doing a listing of things and just say. Help it's the hair bear bunch, and then this happened, yeah. and then you, Roman's holidays. Do you have Stuart Fisher's <laughs> Hanna Barbera cartoons book? Yeah. Do you have Stuart Fisher's Hanna Barbera book? Mm, probably, but you have to tell it me. It is. It is the one book that I I, I have bought mm-hmm. that I regret. Oh. <laughs> it is not good. Oh, then I probably it, don't have. It's it looks like it was just pulled together. There's zero images, by the way. Okay. And it looks like it was no, pulled then, together no. off Wikipedia. Oh, okay. No, I don't have that one. I, you know, I tried not to do that. So I, you know, I, I looked around. I thought about Rankin Bass, but Rick Goldschmidt has that kind of nailed down. So I said, yeah. no, I'm not. Uh, I just thought about doing Filmation, but Andy Mangles and uh, Wayne Jerry McDuff, does. you know, I, they, I they've done other ones. And then I said, what's the studio? There's still one studio that's never been written in English, which is the MGM studio. For TV, you mean, or or no, just for, oh the, uh, yeah, but I didn't yeah, want to do I didn't want to do theatrical either. You know, I kind of think that Jerry kind of covered all the theatrical stuff, With and so I was thinking Patrick. more of television. Now, granted, uh, Patty Freeling did do a lot of theatrical stuff, right? But it ends. You know, if you go by of Mice and Magic, there's no to Patty Freeling cha- chapter. Yeah. It is just that, and the rest of the story. And which I asked him about that the first time I met him. And he goes, well, I wanted those chapters, but Leonard didn't. Leonard Mullen. Yeah. And yeah, let, so. Like, like, I asked, the first thing I asked Jerry when I said Vice and Magic, and, they, and, he, and I, asked, I asked him, like, you know, that exact same question. He says, well, and I asked Leonard Malton the same question, too. Because he wrote that thing on TV cartoons for Film Comet. I'm like, I'm like. Why couldn't that book, that part, have been like the other chapter of A Vice Magic? Yeah. Ooh. And he says, he says, he says, because I'm more interested in the theatrical stuff. That's all I gave. And I yeah. said, okay. That is true. I mean, yeah. now you haven't mentioned the uh, Frozen and Ice, but the Disney yeah. book. I was going to ask about Frozen but, and Ice. But, but I'll say that one because it connects. It connects to these other ones. This is this is how I, I write these books. It's like, uh, so I read Keith Scott's J. Ward book. And he mentions total television saying, oh, those cartoons aren't very good. He's since said, no, they're not that bad. But <laughs> that inspired me to write yeah. the other one. Um, Jerry Beck does his Pink Panther book, but it doesn't talk about the TV stuff. And so I said, well, that's what my book is there for. Leonard Malt does the Disney films, and he does, like, 
page after page, Snow White, Fantasia, Victory Through Air Power, Tonka, Big Red, whatever, you know, all these movies, Happiest Millionaire, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, if you get the first edition, it just kind of abruptly stops again with the rest of the story. Or if you get the second, third, fourth, fifth edition, or I don't know, you put it up, you know, you'll get this like one paragraph synopsis of all these films that came out in the 70s, and 80s. And it's like, that's what I grew up with. And, um, you know, no, no fault of Leonard Malton. He caters to what he grew up with. You know, he grew yeah. up with... I, I, I got to be honest, I agree with Leonard Malton in this case. Yeah, but, but I mean, he grew up with the stuff in the 40s, 50s, or actually the 50s and 60s. My growing up is the 70s and 80s. So it's like, you know, and then there's people younger than me, like, if you know, Andrew Farrago. Uh, he did this book about uh, cartoon stars of the 80s. I don't think I could have done that because, you know, my 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 sweet point of cartoons really is six, 60s and 70s. Right. Now, I don't mean that they're originally released then. No. So you can cover theatrical cartoons. So right. anything up to the 70s. But when you get into the 80s, it's like, yeah, there's some good stuff, but I don't feel qualified enough to write about, like, Deke's output or even Marvel Productions output or uh, Nelvana's output. You know, I could do it, but it yeah. doesn't resonate. We're going to talk about me. one of those questions. It doesn't resonate with me. Yeah. And so I think that's what it is. It's like that the, the, the stuff I like, the 60s and 70s stuff, doesn't resonate with Jerry Beck very well or especially with Leonard Malton very well. You know, it's right. like that's hack stuff that was done after my interest right. went away. Because I know yeah. that Leonard. Yeah. Ever care for Hanna Barbera? But Jerry Beck, Jerry loves it. Yeah, like, yeah, and it's just age group. You know, right. it's like so. Leonard Malton grew up before it existed. Jerry right. Beck grew up with it. I grew right. up where all the early classic stuff was already in reruns. And I you know, grew up with the internet. Yeah, and yeah. you grew up where it's all been put out on video, and you can see anything from any time. Yeah. You know, or whatever. I can, see, I can see. I can see. You know. You know. I don't know. Paramount's uh, ate some. Random modern madcap for free on the on the internet anytime I want. Yeah, I mean, when I got of Mice and Magic in 1980, I was amazed at how many cartoons existed that I didn't know, I'd never seen. Right. I, like, I didn't know where. You know, I didn't even know all the studios made cartoons. Right. I, I I thought about it. It's like okay, I knew Disney obviously, knew the Looney Tunes. Of the Van Buren studio. Knew, I knew nothing of Van Buren. I never heard of them. Yeah. Uh, Terry Tunes, I guess I knew Mighty Mouse and stuff like that. And uh, and then I go, wow, they did this other stuff late in the 60s that was like Six Sydney and Gaston Lecran and stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. And then <laughs> I, I guess I knew the Paramount stuff, you know, somewhat because I knew the Popeye cartoons and, you know, Casper and stuff like that. Uh, but I didn't think about each studio having well, its silent, own silent its own thing. Bobby you Bobby. know, I saw Tom and Jerry. Didn't think about being MGM, but you know, even though you have the Roaring Lion at the beginning of every cartoon, didn't register. It just was like cartoons were around. Woody right. Woodpecker didn't think about being Universal. It's like, oh, I get it. So this studio had this, and it, and so he made it all make sense. But yeah, I, yeah, I never remember Van Buren like, at all. Like, you know, or so. like you know. Yeah, I'm sure you had no idea who, like, you know, what Tommy Stathos says was his incredible sets with, like, you know, Bobby Bumps or yeah. Brain Studios or... Yeah. yeah the like, silent stuff, about the only silent cartoons I knew of was, like, Out of the Inkwell and Felix well, the Cat. And, and that was about it. Part of, well, half the reason also was the Kabarga Slicer Storybook had come out before then, right? 
Right. So I knew about that. But I saw right. him even on TV. Not the, not the 60s. Well, I saw the 60s version, too. But I knew about the silent version. And right. Felix the Cat, because silent cartoons didn't show often on TV. Right. Then, you know. I knew of Oswald the Rabbit, but I never saw them until they were on uh, DVD. Yeah. You know? Now, those are impossible to even find online because yeah. those are stuff like I actually deal with a similar thing with you. Like, you know, if I wanted to, if I just say I wanted to, like, you know, search up a Bobby Bump short, I'd have to wait for Tommy to release it on Blu-ray because they're nowhere online either. It's yeah. only like three guys own them. Yeah. Yeah. It's so but weird. Now, <laughs> now, for... Now I'm going to ask you two books because I remember you said that your most, your least popular books were your Beatles book and also your Monkeys book. Well, Monkeys is the most pop, the most popular. Well, the Monkeys, no, Monkeys is the most popular book. Um, the two Monkeys books and their first Total Television book are probably most most successful books. I would have thought it'd be one of the Harvey books. Those are probably the next tier. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah, but you said yeah. Sorry, I'm mean, not. Well, you said your most least popular were your Disney book and your Beatles book. Yeah, which, <laughs> which I have to ask you a question. Surprised me too. <laughs> which I have to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Out of the one subject in pop culture that's been written so many times is probably the Beatles. Yeah. Why would you write a Beatles book? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not trying to be rude here, but I'm asking. No, well, I mean that one. You know. I get entrepreneurial at times, and I say, well, there's a lot of Beatles books, and it always seems like they make money, no matter what stupid subjects it's on. And I didn't think I had anything I could bring to the table. I certainly was not going to write a straight Beatles history. Right. Um, and But then I said, I can have opinions about things, and... I realized that sometimes my opinions differ from other people's opinions right. about certain songs of theirs. And I said, yeah, it'd be fun just to do a book uh, about my opinions about it. And um, there's an old album called Chet Atkins Picks on the Beatles, which is instrumental versions of Beatles songs uh, picked on a guitar. But uh, I use the other meaning of kick, like I'm picking on you, you know. So I thought that yeah. was just a funny title, you know. I rarely toot my own horn. You know, I, I've talked to other people. It's like, you know, I should probably put my name in things. Like, I have Fun Ideas Productions. It's not Mark Arnold Productions. I don't have, you know. So Mark Arnold picks on the Beatles. I, I think part of the reason it's not very successful is I put my name above the Beatles name and who the, who the whatever is, um, Mark Arnold, you know. And uh, so... Um, now, how did your monkeys book come up? Because that was written. That was was that your book first book written with somebody? I think so. I think yeah. Yeah. Is it your only book written by with somebody? That's what I. Well, asking. the new total television ones with Victoria Biggers and uh, I did those two, the Jack Davis and the John Severin books with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, those and, two. But books those came out later. Those three books you did talk about extensively on other podcasts, so. Yeah. I didn't want to talk about your monkey's book, though, because... Yeah. How that came about, I, I had another friend who wanted to do the same thing, because he... And uh, both of them had... Both friends, uh, the one... Michael Ventrell is the one I ended up writing the book with. Yes. Both of them saw my Beatles book, and they thought it was great. That I was sitting there and daring to say that I didn't like... Um, well, I mean, 
I can't even think of one off the top of my head. Well, I, I you know, I, I'm not a big fan of say all things must pass as much. My favorite George. is help. Okay. And I literally, literally, I tell you, this is true. Somebody said, write a song that, 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 that defines your life. No, okay. Every time I say help as the, as I, 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 I show them the song help. So, you know, I have, I have various opinions about certain Beatles songs, you know, and, and, you know, I, I'm the type, you know, it's like, I'm all critiquing things and saying this is bad and this is, you know, and some people get all butthurt about it. But, you know, the real honest thing is I could probably listen to any Beatles song over and over, even Revolution Number 9. So it really doesn't matter to me. But, you know, I was just kind of thinking that my go-to albums of what, you know, this, you know, when I decided to do all the solo stuff and the unreleased stuff and everything um it just made it like a, an interesting book to do now whether somebody else's interest in my opinions i guess they aren't and so i mean i can't say it never sold it just never sold the level as i expected it to sell that's all right Con considering the topic um yeah. right. the disney one is again the, the same way i thought disney books sold no matter what you said and i right. thought i had a different angle because I covered the period after Disney died before Michael Eisner took over, which nobody ever talks about. And some people yeah, actually why? thought that was great. Other people thought it was horrible because, well, it's the worst period of Disney. You know, it's like, whatever. You know, it's like, I, I still defend it because that's what I grew up with, again. Now, I'm going to ask you one thing, though. I actually... I actually think that it's still a topic to be covered, but I still think it's the worst part of Disney. Until right now, I think that right now we're in a slump too. Yeah. Now, now I'm going to ask you, the Pac-Man book. Why would you do this to yourself? That's another work for hire thing. Okay. So okay. There, there are occasional things I've done in my life that I didn't request to do. Um, yeah, I, I, I was guessing you didn't request to do that one. John Sutherland was one. You mentioned that. Um, let's see. Various articles. I did an article once for Back Issue. I've done a lot of articles. I did one on Korg, 70,000 B.C., which is a Hanna-Barbera. I thought you said Korg. 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 K-O-R-G. Korg. It's a live-action Hanna-Barbera show that, it, that was filmed in 1974 oh, God. on Saturday right. morning. It's pretty lame. Um, I can I tell. Wrote an, I wrote an article about it. It's on DVD from Warner Archives. I never actually bought it. Um, because at the time I did the article, it hadn't been released yet on DVD, yeah. but uh, it would have been helpful if it was at the time. But yeah. anyway, I wrote an article about the comic book mainly. Yes, there was a comic book by Charlton. So, but I mean, that's the type of thing. So occasionally I get a kind of a work for hire thing, as it were. You know, so I'm doing articles. So yeah. how the Pac-Man... Those aren't as fun, though, are they? Uh, the Pac-Man one turned out to be more fun than I thought. But I usually try to make them fun if I don't want to do it. Sutherland turned out to be more fun because more interesting than th I thought it would be. But right. in the case of Pac-Man, yeah, I watched the show when it first came on. I played the video game. I'm not a big video game guy. Um, and it was the publisher, Bear Manor, again. He says, oh, I need a Pac-Man book. And of all people, is Scott Shaw, who said, um, I know the perfect person to write that book. Now, I don't know if he was trying to <laughs> give me a a line or a death sense or something i don't know but um i i i said i don't know if i can do it i don't i'm not your man but you know it's like but if you can't find anybody else maybe i'll take a stab at it and that was really what i said and um so he kept a few months went by 
And uh, the guy who does Bear Manor, his name's Ben Omar. And Ben said, yeah. Mark, Mark, my kid really loves the Pac-Man cartoon show. Please, 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 can you do a cartoon? You know, oh God, it's like if I was going to do, uh, <laughs> if I was going to do a book about the worst um, Hanna Barbera show ever. Um, now I don't know if it really is the worst. Actually, I you haven't that. you haven't written about Wheelie and the Chopper bunch yet, Mark. Yeah, but I actually watched that as a kid, so I could probably have had more fun writing it. But uh, no, I okay. So I I got the DVDs from Warner Archives. I said, okay, at least let me watch the episodes. I've liked Marty Ingalls from other things like I'm Dickensy's Fenster, and yeah. I said, I okay, you know, maybe I can make this fun. And we talked a little bit earlier about doing a Hanna Barbera book. I said, hey, I could squeeze in a Hanna Barbera history in this book and disguise it as a Pac-Man book because I can't talk, and I, I can't talk for 300 pages about Pac-Man alone. Um, so yeah. I told Ben I was going to do it this way. I said, I'm going to put a history of uh, Hanna-Barbera in it. And so, like, the first third of it is the history. It's very condensed. It really just basically says titles and a few events, but it's very thorough, you yeah. know, because I realized nobody's really done a Hanna-Barbera history. It was my way of doing a Hanna-Barbera book without doing a Hanna-Barbera book. Now, then, then I did the history of Pac-Man, the game, and then I did a history of video games in general, and then I did a history of the TV show. And doing all that research, I made it more fun because I didn't know all the history of video games. I didn't know, because I, I grew up with it all starting. I started off right. at Pong and all that stuff. And, you know, the, all the different games came out, Space Invaders and whatever, and I just played them um, not knowing what I was playing and Chuck E. Cheese. So you were a gamer out. growing up? What? You were a gamer growing up? Yeah, but I mean, well, not an avid one. I mean, it's yeah. not like the way you can do it now where you just sit down at your yeah. computer and do it. You had to go to an arcade, and it was like at the pizza parlor or whatever, and you put in a quarter and play a game. You know, the video arcades didn't even really exist until like the late 70s and maybe early 80s. And, and then movies like Tron came out and stuff like that. So I was there when all that stuff started. I went to Chuck E. Cheese when it first opened, and it was very video game centric and you know they had the animatronic mouse and all the other characters and everything back then because the atari guy created this, atari created that stuff you know and um i don't know but um so i have an active interest but as time went on on video games the reason why i got out of them is because i kind of like the simple graphics of the earliest ones you know and then when they got to be all just shoot 'em ups where you know you're doing the perspective of a guy yeah. going down hunting down like castle wolfenstein and yeah. later worlds of warcraft and you know even grand theft auto and all that i lost interest it's like the more realistic it became the less interested i got so anyway. with me growing up it was never like you know i was never like you know bullied or anything usually never at all but if i was bullied at all it was not because i was interested in com comics or animation or that i was a nerd like it could nobody could care less. Mm. It's that I wasn't a sports fan. Yeah. It's that I wasn't a gamer. Yeah. That's what that's what was the big taboo about my life. That I didn't watch sports. Yeah. I was never a sports fan either, but I did have certain eras. I always I always say this, and I've even said this recently. I've never been a rooter of a team. Yeah. You know, like there's People that, you know, 
I love uh, Yankees. Yeah, I love the Yankees. We'll just say the Yankees. Just you know, I love the Yankees, even when they lose. I love the Yankees. To me, it's like, well, the players switch all the time. So how can you love the team? I mean, when you're you have all the players yeah. you like, then they trade them all off or they all leave, whatever. And then you still like the team. Well, that's the way you are. You're supposed to be a fan through and through. But I'm not a fan of the name. I'm a fan of the players. So, like in the early 70s, here's my fandom of sports. I loved the early 70s Oakland A's because they had this solid team that kept going to the World Series a few years in a row. Um, and then free agency came in in the mid-70s. And so everybody got to be on A team. They all left. And the team went down the toilet. And I said, Wow. That sucks. And then so I lost interest in baseball. And then football, during the 80s, 49ers were big at Joe Montana. I loved them. They went to the Super Bowl a few times. Blah, 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 blah. And then slowly after time, everybody retired or traded off. Or blah, blah, blah. And then a few years later, I got interested in basketball because there was a team, Sacramento Kings, and I liked them because they had some cool players. And then slowly over time, they traded them off, and then the team sucked, and that was the end of that. And uh, you know, so I like base groups of sports figures for a certain amount of time. Like I, you know, I wasn't even around in the early sixties, but I would have liked to, I would have been a San Francisco Giants fan because he had like Willie Mays and stuff like that on the team at the time. And they were, it was a solid team, even though they didn't really go to the world series, but you know, sports for me, it's like, I can enjoy it. If I watch it, I never actively seek it out. Usually the Super Bowl is an excuse for me to go out and eat because yeah. the restaurants are empty unless you go to sports bars and it, you know, and it's like, so yeah, I've never been a sports guy. Video yeah. games, neither. You know, it's like, I'd rather write books. I, I was, yeah. Growing up, I was, of course, I grew up in an era on social media. So that yeah. was the other taboo that I was never heavily on social media. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't have an Instagram account. <laughs> so I have one, but I never use it. So yeah. I always test these things out. I'm I'm always kind of this. I'm a Facebook guy just because I, I liked MySpace better, but you know, and it's fun to just get. You know, I had a website, but it's fun to just have like the instant response. Yeah. You know, you post something. Hey, yeah. here's my new book. Oh wow, looks good. I want to buy it. You know, it's fun to see that. But that's the only reason. But I yeah. rarely go on the internet and say, "Oh, I'm having a bad day," or I had a tuna sandwich for right. lunch you know That's it's me like too. It's me too. i don't even have very many pictures of me on facebook i yeah. just have you know yeah. my profile picture is right now it's like you know my cover photo is a picture from popeye from right <laughs> from, from short and i'm like i don't even need a picture of me on facebook why yeah. no I, I don't care about my life i'm just talking about somebody like, yeah yeah but now the last two books and then i'm going to get you in the, the point or for uh, we might even have to do this a different time where we talk about people you've met. Okay. Um, okay. Now, two Alvin Show. Yeah. And the Alvin Show and the Dennis the Menace book, those are the two books. Okay. Uh, which one? Just how they came about? Yeah. Um, Alvin Show came about, this is a Scott Shaw story again, which is kind of funny. Um, when Total Television book came out, Scott Shaw... I saw him at San Diego. I assume you know who Scott Shaw is when I keep mentioning yeah. him. Yeah, I, I talked to Scott for my Hannah Rivera essay. Oh, okay. All right. You know, I just mentioned him. And it's like, I assume you know who he is. Uh, for anybody out there, he's done, he did Captain Carrot for DC. He's drawn he's on your podcast. Flintstones, everything. So he's, you know, worked on he's been on, he's been on my podcast, I guess. Oh, okay. Right All right, very good. So 
after I did my total television book, he says, you know, Mark, you should do a book about format films, the company that did the Alvin show. And I go, well, that'd be a very short book. And I gave him a very flippant answer. It's like once one day there was format films, they made the Alvin show and then they made the Lone Ranger and then they closed the end. <laughs> and so I said, I'm probably not going to be doing a book about format films. And so um, uh, he didn't even remember that I, I said that or, you know, but it is something I said. And then years later, when I was thinking about different things to do. Um, and like I said, I, I try to do studios nobody else covers. I said, hmm, format. They might, they've actually done a little bit more than I thought they would. Now, the book may not be as thick as some of those books like the Patty Freeling, but I think it's good, though. I can get about 300 pages on this and there's certainly a lot of pictures I can show. So, and I really just wanted to do about the chipmunks, but I was worried about the Bagasarians. Um, so far they have left me alone. I wanted to interview them, but uh, they didn't respond. I tried every which way to get, I talked to the secretary, I wrote them a letter. Did they ever I, tell you if they like your book? I have never heard that they like it or disliked it, but they also haven't given me a lawsuit. So I'm very grateful. They have left me alone. So anyway, um, but I decided to, to play it safe. I, I'm not just going to talk about him or the Alvin show. I'm also going to talk about format films and their history and Liberty records and their history. And it actually turned out to be a better book for that, but I didn't just focus solely on the chipmunks. Yeah, right. Because I really didn't want to cover the later chipmunk stuff. I mean, I yeah. do like very quickly at the end, but you know, just to kind of say what happened, but, uh, I just wanted to focus on the because most people really care about the original years. Certainly Scott Shaw does. And yeah. when he and I appeared on Stu Showstack, both of them were appreciative that I didn't cover the later stuff in great depth. And it's like, yeah. I am too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I try not to. You know, you mentioned the underdog movie. Well, it, I had to mention it because there is a big gap of nothing. You know, it's like, and that was the last kind of gasp of anything to do with I think a lot of people are going to be the same thing. The people that hated that movie are going to think what they think of it. Yeah. So I, I didn't give a thumbs down on any of the later Chipmunks projects. I just mentioned them really quickly because right. I didn't really I want said to The talk. only thing that's good is that the that first Chipmunk movie because yeah. if you ignore the actual movie and just pay attention to the innuendos of the original Alvin show, yeah, it's watchable. Yeah. But you just got to ignore the movie. Yeah. So I tend to agree, but you know, again, I didn't review it. I just mentioned it. You know, a lot of hate, a lot of people hate it. I know Stuart hates it. Yeah. Stu hates it. Of course, but, Stu hates a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> um, now the Dennis the Menace book that was kind of like a personal. That was like a personal thing, like the, the um, Disney one. You know, just a personal project I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, originally, um, in the all the years of collecting Harvey comics. Um, you know, you go to different shows and there wouldn't be any, but somehow I'd find like Dennis the Menace books for like nothing, you know, a big box of Dennis the Menace books for a quarter, yeah, even cheaper. So I just buy them over time. And then even though, yeah. even the ones that are Christmas, Christian themes, because I, I, anything that had a religious theme, I was out. No, Archie with religious themes, I was just like, uh uh. Well, I, I, know, I bought those. School. Yeah, I bought those because I saw them at a religious bookstore once, and I said, "That's yeah." Cool. I, I was like, I was like, I go to, I go to, I go to 
a religious public school. I went to religious high school. Uh, uh-uh, I am done with Jesus. Not, no. not the comic. I didn't have a problem with it, you know, because yeah. it still was Archie. It's still this and this, but uh, I didn't know, realize those are so hard to find. That's what the the weird part was. But um, I just collected them, and I got to the point where I had almost every issue. I was missing very few. And by this point, eBay came along, and so I said, I'll just snag the, the, the rest of them up. And so I got a complete set. And I had my friend Greg Bita was friends with Frank Hill, who drew for Dennis the Menace, and he drew a bunch of other comic strips and things like that, and Lee Hawley. And they both lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I met with both of them, and I said, hey, if I do a book on Dennis Menace, will you be interviewed? Because by this point, Ketchum was dead. Hank Ketchum was dead. And um, I didn't know anybody else that worked on it. But And I was just going to talk about the comic books. And then it branched out. I started talking about the, the comic strip. And then I uh, interviewed Ron Ferdinand, who does the, the comic strip currently, and Marcus Hamilton, who does the comic panel currently. And then Stu Shostak said, oh, you got to talk about the TV show with Jay North. And so I didn't want to interview Jay North. And, and Stu gave me permission to just take quotes from his interviews, which I was perfectly fine with because he asked some actually decent questions and I took actual quotes. So, Did you care for the Dennis the Menace TV shows? I actually agree with Matt Groening. Um, have you heard Matt Groening's quote about the Dennis the Menace show? No, what is it? I agree with him because he says that he made The Simpsons because he wanted Bart to be something that Dennis on the TV show was not. Because I like the comic strip and I like the comic books too. I have some of the comic books too. But the TV show, I gotta be honest, I'm actually not a fan of it because I'm actually, I I liked Lita the Beaver a while ago, but I just, I liked Eddie Haskell and Leaf the Beaver. That's the whole reason that makes that show stand out. Beaver, I don't even care about. It's yeah. like, it's a kid. Yeah. But the show, I agree with Mech Rang said you have this like really great opening sequence, and then you have this mamby bamby little kid who's just whining all the time and he's got this <laughs> slingshot that he never uses. Yeah. Well, I like Dennis Menace, uh, the comic books. The comic yeah. stri- the comic panel in the newspaper, I didn't really get when I was a kid because it's only one frame and it's right. it's kind of when I was really little, but they they would put like an animated Dennis on various shows, like Curiosity Shop they did, the Chuck Jones show, which is long gone and stuff like that. But so I always sent me some copies of them. And uh, Dairy Queen is still around, but they don't have Dennis Menace stuff, but they always had Dennis Menace stuff when I was a kid. So, and in Monterey, which is close to the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a playground there uh Dennis the Menace Playground so you know the character is around and yeah I saw the Jay North show and my opinion of the show was just disappointment yeah because again you know you're doing a live action version of something I thought should be a cartoon and then of course if you watch the show the cartoon version is just a tornado at the beginning of the show it's like at least they could have animated him on the opening credits it's like how cheap can you get um yeah, that's, that's, I, that's, I that's, watched that's, it, and then I kind of, when I was later, I kind of missed it because, you know, it's like, what you know, I remember watching it as a kid, and it kind of went away. It was never in syndication after a while. Mm-hmm. And then they put him on DVD, and I got him, and I go, oh, wait, that's mess. I'm watching it, and I go, wow, this show is really obnoxiously shrill. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I thought the you know, same thing about like, David the Beaver. He's like, Mr. Woo! Like, 
too often during the show, and you're like, mm, I you know, it's like, I'll leave it to Beaver. Yeah, because I'm like, I've never been a Beaver fan either. See, it's like I, know, I, I like the Beaver. These shows. I remember I watched the first season back to back, and I'm like, yeah, I like this Kitty Eye Haskell. Then I'm watching like you know, and again I'm like. I still like Eddie Haskell. I still think he's a brat, but I think he's kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. The rest of it is just, it's just dreck. It's just, yeah. it feels like a, it feels like a commercial for conservative America. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's the issue. I just didn't think it was as funny as like, see, I was, I, it, it depends on when you grew up. Again, this is like what we we're talking about on comic, uh, on, on not comic books, on animated cartoons. Yeah, you, know, you got Leonard Malton, you got Jerry Beck, and then me, and then Andrew Farrago. It's just different, you know, eras. Yeah. And so, because of that, we have our preferences of what we like better. Right. Probably all of them are okay, but, you know, they're, it's what you grew up with is what you like. So, right. on TV shows, you know, things like Leave it to Beaver and uh, Dennis the Menace were kind of more like Stu Showstack. He loves those shows. Whereas right. me, they left me kind of cold. But then I, I know that the show that had kids that I liked was the Brady Bunch. And Stu's like, uh, you know, and I get I it. He was, what? I agree with Stuart. Yeah. I mean, so he, I get it, you know, and there's probably somebody younger than me that loves Full House, let's say, you know, yeah. for ki- shows with kids on it, you know, and I couldn't care less about that show. So it's whatever you grew up with. Um I, you know, there are some that cross the line. Like, I think all generations can, like, say, the Dick Van Dyke show or I Love Lucy. But it's well, really... What? The Andy Griffith show. Yeah. But I mean, it's I'm really hard... Black and white ones. It's really hard for, like, a show like Leave it to Beaver necessarily to cross yeah, yeah. all generational barriers because it's so... There's something about it that's so set in where it was. Right. Whereas Andy Griffith, that's a good example. It's like, yes, it was in the 60s, but right. it seems so timeless. It could be almost any time. Yeah, you know? I think that it depends, though. I think that the only reason why the Andy Griffith show is there, is like that, is because of Don Knotts, I think. Yeah. Like, I think those color ones yeah. are just there. There's like well, nothing appealing about them. The funny thing about it is I never saw the Don Knotts ones for years. I always saw the color ones because when I was a kid, the year I was born, color TV was the norm for right. prime time. Right. And in, so immediately they started whisking away black and white stuff. So Except if for I, Lucy, right? What? Didn't they still show Lucy by that time? They would show I Love Lucy, but, you know, um, you know I'm talking about new shows. But if they showed right. reruns, reruns, if they showed Gilligan's Island, they never showed the first season. If they showed Lost in Space, they never showed the first season. I Dream of Genie, they never showed the first season. So Andy Griffith Show, they never showed the first five seasons. And right. I would read in some of these TV books, they'd say, oh, well, Don Knotts, he was the funniest thing on there, blah, blah, blah. And I only remembered him being on there a couple times in the color episode, so I don't know what the hubbub was about. That's, you know? that's confusing. You know, and it's like, the- you know, how can he be the big star? And it's like, then I finally, when home video came out, they started showing these older black and white things, and I go, Oh, because my favorite episode of the Andy Griffith show is the one where uh, Barney Fife is in the choir and he thinks he can sing and he can't and he sings right. out of tune, you know, and, it, and that's hysterical. But I never saw that as a kid. Right. I never saw Gomer Pyle on uh, Andy Griffith's show. I didn't even know it was a spinoff. You know, it's like, 
because, like I said, they didn't show this black and white stuff. The well, only thing they didn't show in black and white. Opie shows up. What? Doesn't it get confusing when Opie shows up then. What? What do you mean? The color ones? Or yeah, the yeah, ones? yeah. The color ones because doesn't Opie show up one in the color one? He, Opie's in, a, in the color ones, yeah. Yeah, but I even saw maybe RFD in new episodes, and I was saying, what happened to Andy Griffith? Where did he go? <laughs> you know. Yeah. But then, but you said you grew up with you said Gomer, you saw Gomer Pyle the spinoff, but you didn't know it was a spinoff. I'm like, well, does, doesn't it get confusing when Opie shows up? Oh, I just saw you some kid. I didn't connect the dots. I was pretty young, you know. But it's yeah. like you know, um, yeah. I mean, even Aunt Beast shows up on an episode of. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but I didn't know it was a spin-off even then because you know, you you've seen that before where you know you have some random character that has nothing to yeah. do with the other one show up in something and you go, Hey, that's pretty cool. You know. Yeah. So I never knew for years that was connected, you know, and then I go, Oh, because I always thought the first time they connected T V shows was like this all in the family of Mary Tyler Moore show where they had all the spin-offs from there. I never yeah. thought about you know, well, even Andy Griffith shows a spinoff of the Danny Thomas show. I didn't know that either. <laughs> you know, I actually so, didn't know that either until much later, too. You know, so there you go. Um, now, probably we probably should stop now and then come back. Can we, can okay. we do this again and then and then talk about the people you met? Because sure. I got to get back to my dorm. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And this is enough for a show now, but. Okay. I'll let you wrap it up, and we'll okay. we'll join well, them again another time. <laughs> this has been the Podjack Pod Pod Podjack Podcast. I'm hijacked. Uh, give it back. <laughs> it's back now. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Mark Arnold and Camden Spees, for being my special guests. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number one thirty six will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Danny Salazi of The Characters and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2021, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you, and good night.